Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thank you so much for pulling your chair up to the cool kids table. We are now pushing in, gosh, we're approaching 475 episodes. We're just shy of that. This is like, I'm guessing, right, 474, somewhere around there. I don't have my paperwork in front of me, but we're going to close in on 500 here by the fall. And I started this show because I believe that success leaves clues. When we get the chance to talk to people who've had really big successes in their life, they can't help it. They have to give us an idea, a nugget, a theory, some sort of information that can help all of us along our own journey. And I'm really excited about today's show because I have one of the founders of Kickstarter. And I met Yancey Strickler. I met him uh, at a conference where I was the master of ceremonies. He was the closing keynote speaker. And that's the cool part about my job is sometimes, you know, you get to sit next to people at breakfast and you're like, so, who are you? Well, I'm the co-founder of Kickstarter. No, it was not quite like that. I knew who he was. But uh, sometimes you just meet people who have a really good soul. And I asked him, would you be on the show to share your story? And without even thinking about it, he just said yes. So, I've been really excited for the last couple of weeks about having Yancey here on the show. So, Yancey, welcome to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, glad to have you. So I don't really get into like reading bios and things like that. I always like people to sort of introduce themselves. So who is Yancey Strickler and and and, and what do you do? What's your background? Uh, well, uh, I'm a 40-year-old human um, <laughs> who currently lives in Los Angeles, but that's a recent, recent thing in my life. Um, I, I grew up in Southwest Virginia, right on the border of Virginia and West Virginia uh, on a farm. Um, my family, we, we weren't farmers. Uh, my mom and stepfather and I, we rented the house from the, the men who owned it. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was, that was a very, uh, conservative part of the world. I, I went to Christian school up, uh, through fifth grade and, uh, switched to public school in sixth grade and, um, and just always dreamed of the wider world. I read all the time. We didn't have a lot of neighbors, um, I was by myself a lot. Uh, we didn't have TV or, or, you know, much, much in the way of that. So I just read all the time. And my dream was always to be a writer. And after graduating high school, uh, I went to a place called the William, the college of William and Mary. Oh, also great, great school. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and they're also, you know, having this idea that I was meant to be a writer and, and ultimately, that took me to, to New York City, where I made a living as a rock critic for about 10 years. So, so I, w- I want to stop you right there, because I remember reading that when I introduced you, and I thought, yeah. what a cool job to be a rock critic. Yeah. I mean, were, yeah. You, were you really into music growing up, too, or did you just sort of stumble into that? Yeah, my, dad, my dad's a musician, uh, and I grew up playing music with him. In fact, I, play, I played in a band with my dad for about eight months. The band's name is called Rock Bottom. And their drummer <laughs> broke his wrist and I filled in, which is like a sign of the level of the band at that point. Um, How old were you at that point? Probably 14, 13, 14. <laughs> my only time playing drums. Um, but yeah, music from the beginning was always very central. You know, my dad had a has a giant record collection and he would just start playing these songs. And it was like, 
I mean, it was absurd. He just over and over, he would say one more song and you would know you wouldn't be able to leave the couch for three hours because uh, <laughs> he'd want to go deeper and deeper. And so that, you know, that was just there. I was, I think his dream for me was that I would become the rock star that he didn't make it exactly as. Um, and, uh, but I was just never talented enough. And especially in high school, I started getting into weirder music and then I, I mostly know how to play country and bluegrass. And so I, once I couldn't play the music that I liked listening to, kind of my interests shifted. Now, now, I, now I play all the time. Um, but I just listened obsessively and loved discovering new bands. And, you know, this is the time when you would, I would buy a magazine just to see the name of a band I'd never heard of before. So I could like figure out how to hear them somehow. And this and, is pre-internet, pre so you had to probably hunt around, find unique music stores maybe to find their stuff. Yeah, and that just, that just lit, up, lit up my mind. And, and in one, one thing I, in particular, I remember there's a great, a great record store in town called the Record Exchange. The people who worked there were students at Virginia Tech, the college, so they were very cool. And I would go in as a 12, 13-year-old, and I, would just, I just wanted to buy what they liked, even if I didn't like it. Because I knew that they were cool and I knew that I was not. <laughs> and if I just bought enough, if I just bought enough records that they were into, it would happen. And uh, I think I'm st the jury's still out for me on, the, on, on that one. But that, that was always the dream. And, and, and so then, yeah, I was ultimately able to combine writing, you know, the fact that I can put words together fairly well and the fact that I was so obsessive and so knowledgeable um, into a... I mean, I, I say career as a music critic, but like I was not, you know, I was not well known. I just have a weird name. And so <laughs> people would remember my name. I would stick out. Right. And, uh, but that was my dream. And I got to do it for like eight or nine years doing all my day jobs were related to that. And then on the side, I was freelancing. See, that's all. That's awesome. I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people don't ever get to live their dream and you got to do it right, right out of the right out of the box. So that's great. So what so you, you were a journalist. What led you what led you into entrepreneurship? Um, well, I guess there's probably, there's, there's different points, I guess I could speak to that. I, I would say that could speak to that, but probably it was a job I got in 2002 with, at the time they weren't called startups, but I think now we'd call it a startup. And it was a company called Flavor Pill, which sent a weekly cultural new, uh, cultural events emails for like six cities around the world. It's like New York, London, San Francisco, things like that. And I got hired to be a, um, an editor, like a monkey that would just put the copy into the mailing, you know, um, um, yeah, well, I'm forgetting the name of the machine we use, but anyway. Um, and so I did that and, but it was very small and I quickly rose up. And I, I got hired to be a production editor and I was a managing editor and soon one of the people running things within about three months. Mm. And it was my first time, my jobs before had been in a, a larger company and it was my, yeah, my first time being in that kind of environment. And I found that thinking, I guess strategically would be the right word, um, getting people to care about things, like thinking through those kinds of problems came really naturally to me, which I didn't expect. And honestly, I was a little bit like, I didn't love that I was good at those things because I was like the rock critic guy. You know, this was like, I'm, this is the day job that I hope I don't have to do for too long or something like that. Right. It was, it was, you know, you were, you were the editor of this, of this cultural newsletter, but you really wanted to be doing something else. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it, but, uh, but yeah, but that just sort of gave me the taste of being in a kind of an open environment where you could have ideas, execute ideas where, yeah, it's just, you know, everyone's just kind of trusted to do their thing. And if you don't, then you lose your job, you know? <laughs> um, and, and then I, I got a, you know, a couple, another job that similarly had entrepreneurial capabilities this is at a company called eMusic and I get a, a, a hedge fund had bought it at like a bargain sale of universal properties and they were trying to relaunch it. And I got brought in as one of the team to do that. And so, you know, you're like rebirthing a whole site. And so that is a, that is a very entrepreneurial kind of experience defining what it would become. I, and while I was there, I started a record label as well. Um, so I was always like, I don't know. I, I was always someone who had ideas. And if you, if I, someone gave me enough rope to do it, I would, I so, would. So I, you're I, the I second, you're the it. second person I've had on in two months who, who started a record label. Yeah. So, uh, the, the guy who's the general manager of Austin city limits, Tom Gimbel mm. was just on the show last month. Well, you know, I, at the time I was just seeing so many kind of baby bands and basements and house parties in Brooklyn and they would be selling like CDRs because this again, kind of pre-internet CDRs, uh, not pre-internet, but pre-streaming uh, of their music. And I just thought I should just start putting these out of these great bands. And so I started that while I was at eMusic and put out maybe 20 records, some really, really good ones. Uh, and then Kickstarter happened. Yeah, I was just going to say, let's, let's jump into that because probably one or two people have heard of Kickstarter. So, yeah. so, so what um, happened there? How did that come about? Um, so... Uh, I didn't have the idea for Kickstarter. The idea for Kickstarter uh, was had by um, uh, Perry Chen, um, who's my, my friend and, and Kickstarter's founder. Perry had had the idea a couple of years before we had met. He was living in New Orleans and wanted to put on a concert and didn't have enough money to make it happen. But had this idea of um, what if he could propose to the public the idea of the concert people could put up their credit cards to buy tickets, but no one would be charged unless the show sold out. That way he wouldn't have to make the choice of, is this a good idea or not? Instead, like the New Orleans music community can make that choice together. So he, he had that idea in 2001 and wasn't quite sure what to do about it. And then he moved back to New York where he was from in 2005 and that's where we met. And at the time he was waiting tables in a restaurant I was like a regular there and we became friends and eventually he shared me this idea he'd had for what we would now call crowdfunding. And, um, and I had my day job then. And, and when he told me the idea, I didn't, I didn't like it at first. I told him it reminded me of American Idol. <laughs> and I, it was like the American Idol era. And I'm like, why, why do we need more of the public voting on things like that? Um, but the more we talked about it, the more, um, the more I was convinced that it was a good idea and, and he invited me to be a part of it. Nice. And so, and, and so we started, we started just spending nights and weekends working on it. And, you know, so I, I, have, remember, I, I have a question. How yeah. does one start a business before yeah. there was Kickstarter? Cause you didn't have <laughs> Kickstarter to fund Kickstarter. Yeah, they're really, yes, it's true. It's true. People would often suggest that we start the site to fund the site. Uh, <laughs> but, but we were not, neither Perry or I or Charles Adler, uh, who's uh, also co-founder, none of us were, were engineers. And so we couldn't build the site ourselves. Um, we had to hire external people to do it, uh, which we were, 
constantly warned by more experienced people that was a bad idea for us to rely on external developers, but our attitude was whatever old man, you know, maybe back in your day, but for us, <laughs> for us, it's different. And, uh, and it did end up being a bad idea. Um, you know, we, we gotten money, we'd raised a little bit of money from you know, friends and family. Um, a lot of those people were folks who were in the creative universe. Cause at the time the whole pitch was, you know, creative projects are only funded if a record company, if a movie studio, if a book publisher thinks they're going to be a hit. But if you're just doing something for the love of it, there's no one going to give you money. And there needed to be a universe where ideas could exist just because people wanted them to. And so that, that was Kickstarter. Um, and, uh, and so the people that were most connected with that message were people who were, weren't able to do ideas because, um, because their ideas weren't marketable enough. And so the initial money came from the comedian David Cross, came from one of the, uh, at the time, the, one of the editors of Pitchfork, a couple guys in bands, you know, just like really people came from that world. And we used that money to hire engineers to try to build the site. Um, but that process of first really committing to doing Kickstarter to Kickstarter launching, that was like, uh, for me, that was about a four year gap in between. Oh, wow. Four years. 2005 is when we started, uh, you know, I got involved 2006. It was really full on 2007, 2008 full on, but it wasn't until 2009 that it launched. When did you join the company full time? So uh, the, the site launched in April 2009. I still had my day job at eMusic until that point because um, I grew up without money and I didn't have savings. And I didn't quit my job until Kickstarter had been live for maybe four months, hmm. maybe four months. And so if you wrote Kickstarter customer support, you know, <laughs> between the hours of 10 and five, you probably were going to get a response, but like five 30, you'd hear back from me. <laughs> you were responding all night long. That's good. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I was scared to leave. I was scared to quit my job. Um, and you know, it wasn't like Kickstarter was instantly and obviously a success. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it, the doors didn't get blown off from the beginning. It never felt like a failure. I mean, it felt like a failure before it launched, but once it launched, it never felt like it was failing. But for me to let go of the rope of a salary was really scary and, uh, and just felt like for me growing up lower middle class, like anytime I've ever had anything, I've just assumed I'm like pre poor, like I'm just going to lose it all and fall back. And I kind of had that same fear about that moment. Do you still feel that way today? Um, no, no. I mean, we set up the company in such a way that, um, like Kickstarter hasn't gone public, hasn't sold. We didn't raise a lot of venture capital. So as founders, it, it isn't a lottery ticket for us. It hasn't been that. Um, but you know, I'm, I've been far enough. It's been long enough without me bouncing a check that the memory seems really distant. But <laughs> during my you know, during my 20s in New York, like making a living as a rock critic, that was, those are all very real parts of life um, that really only my 30s started to go away. So what's it like for a kid who grew up on a rented farmhouse mm -hmm. to suddenly be the CEO of what arguably is one of the hottest, com or, you know, has been one of the hottest companies of the past decade, as far as at least the buzz, you yeah. know, what, what was that like when all of a sudden you were a team in New York? 
Yeah. I mean, I, um, it was, it was surreal. I mean, there, there is the benefit of the slowly warming pot, um, where the normal happens gradually. And, um, and during the first, during the first four and a half years that we were live, um, that we were up, uh, I was like the head of community, head of whatever, head of a bunch of different things. Um, and then, uh, and Perry was CEO and then Perry stepped up to be chairman about four years in and I stepped in to be CEO. And, um, yeah, there was a period where I, as CEO, where I was just like waiting, waiting for the adult to tap me on the shoulder and to be like, get out of the chair, kids. <laughs> you know, I, I definitely had a lot of, uh, imposter syndrome feelings. Um, and a lot of that coming from, um, you know, I, I'm, I work all the time. I wouldn't call myself a workaholic because somehow work doesn't feel like working, but I, I do work all I, the time. I can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but I didn't identify with the kind of, um, with the message I got from the tech business CEO community to, you know, to be hyper aggressive and to be so cutthroat and to be zero sum and, power driven and you know there's just a certain mentality that kind of uber best exemplifies as like this era and that was the era when i was a ceo when and when kickstarter was rising um you know there was a year where TechCrunch uh had in its crunchies like the best startup award and the nominees were uber twitter snapchat and kickstarter and kickstarter won Mm -hmm. um and so those were like the the contemporaries and just had such the opposite culture and and I have the opposite values of those ways of thinking. And that, that created a lot of fear in me. You know, I I felt I was often, I mean, I I felt for the most part sure about our path and proud of being not a financially maximizing company, not a hyper self-oriented company, like all those things are just true about who I am and who Kickstarter is. Um, but I always wondered if I, like, what if I'm wrong? And, you know, I seem so out of sync, like no one else seems to be saying the things that we're saying. What, what does that mean? Is, are we really the only ones who know and everyone else is wrong? Like what, let's play the odds here. What's, what's, what's the most likely real thing? And so I, you know, I, especially at moments of like rest at, at moments of, um, crisis or when I had a long to-do list, I never thought about those things. I was just busy and I was just doing the job and I was very good at the job. But at moments when I could, my brain could start spinning. Yeah. I, I, I would often spin myself, especially early on into bad places of just, uh, I don't know, you, you make it where you, you find it very difficult to trust yourself. And then you're just, you know, where are you then? You know, it's, it's tough. So what led you to decide the time had come to step down as CEO? And, and although you're still involved with the company, you're not involved on a daily basis. How, what, what was that like? And, and how does one, you know, how does one step away from being CEO of Kickstarter? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's not an easy process. Um, you know, I think that, uh, I, I love doing that job. I love doing that job, but also, um, it, it took everything and then some out of me for a very long time. Um, you know, I could, I could feel that building up 
and you know and and that questioning nature about myself would also lead me to ask, like, am I am I the right person to do this? You know, I think there are many parts of the job where I don't think there's anyone in the world who could do the sorts of things that I was doing. I think there are other parts of the job where there's like thousands of people who would be much better than me at whatever those things are. The question <laughs> is, what what's the relative value of these things to a company? I mean, it's, it's that case for anybody. Um, and so, yeah, so there, you know, myself and and the board we started talking about that and 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 i i sent an email asked asked opening that question saying hey i I, you know i want to think about the long term in the company and um you know and i have to think about myself as a part of that and like here's the case for me i want to make the case for me but also like what does the company need and um you know so it was trying to trying to wear both the co-founder hat and the CEO hat, like the person who most wants the company to succeed. And then also the person who just wants to succeed on their own, you know, and, and trying to look at something from both those places. And so that, that, you know, that led to months of conversation that netted out with, yeah, me being ready to step away. And, um, you know, there. Uh, once when I was when I was deep in Kickstarter, like I I was the Kickstarter guy for like a decade, the Kickstarter guy, and and was had no problem being that person, and um, and and just and genuinely like a fan of the people who do things on the platform and the kinds of things the platform makes happen, and so all that was just very natural to me, um, but once I made the choice to step away and once that process began, um, I was really surprised to discover how much space and energy I had in myself out beyond that Kickstarter part of me. (laughs) And suddenly where, you know, it's like I had, I had before been working from like an earth centric view of the universe. Instead I was like looking at the universe and I could see earth for what it was. (laughs) And, um, and that brought with it just a, a, a tremendous burst of energy and, and just like an, an ability to really kind of reflect for the first time on what this decade of work has been and is netted out to. And um, yeah, it, 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 it was fascinating. I mean, one, one of the things I, I did not expect to have happen, um, but like, uh, for like the month after, uh, after I stepped down, I made this, I decided I was going to run like strategic planning processes, processes on myself. Like I was going to treat myself like I was a corporation and just imagine, all right, I'm planning like the next 18 months of the resources of this entity. Like what should they do? And, um, ended up coming up with through, you know, through like a week of different kinds of exercises and thought processes came up with like five options I could imagine me moving forward with. And I ended up spending uh, a day living inside of each of those options. Like, let's imagine I, let's imagine I chose to uh, start, you know, this, this side project I have going, let's imagine I tried turning that into a company. Could I, could I do that? Do you mind sharing what the five, the five thoughts were or, or at least examples of them? Yeah, I mean, one one was one was while, while I was at Kickstarter, I'd had a side project I'd made with some friends. Uh, it's an app called Miked, M-I-C-D, that lets people announce NBA games. Um, you can be a commentator using your phone. You and up to five friends 
can call the game together and people listen to you instead of the television while they watch the game. Um, so that had been like a side project I'd had going for a couple of years. And I was like, all right, do I, do I make Mike real? Like, am I, do I want to be the CEO of another tech company? You know, do I uh, want to write a book? Do I want to, do I want to make a, a TV show? You know, do I want to try to be like the, the Anthony Bourdain of art and culture? You know, do I, uh, do I devote myself to teaching to like a different kind of service than I've imagined in the past? I, I spent a whole day just trying to imagine jobs that would have no like media ego gratification. You know, what, what, like, why is it that every job I think about is something that is public? Like, what if I remove public as an option for me? What, what could I possibly do? And so just a lot, a lot of time just challenging and, and sort of limiting myself just to try to see what jarred loose from inside my brain. So this is actually a fascinating exercise that I've never had anyone sort of talk about, about taking this, this look at what if I was a corporation and we were making an 18-month business plan, coupled with the, here's five ideas, let's go live them for a day and see what it would be like. In a way, I've never heard of such a thing. And yet I'm overwhelmed with this might be the most genius piece of advice we've ever shared on cool things <laughs> entrepreneurs do uh, for like the people listening. It, it was it was two weeks. It was a two week process. It was like a week of there's a there's a um, yeah there's just a great you know a lot of great management books that I'd read over the years and I just there are things that I'd like from them and so I have I still have it. I had a giant sketch pad and every day every page I would just make a list of here's everything I've done before. Here's every sort of professional relationship I've had. Here's everything I've thought about, here's everything I failed at, and just trying to like, just get it down. Um, so, and then use that as a springboard. So, and the winner was what? What did you decide to do? Um, just appear on podcasts. That's I'm living my dream. <laughs> that's living that's my dream. awesome. Thank you. And, and, and podcast hosts across the country are thanking uh, you right now. Uh, what, what came back as, as the, as the fit was a, a book idea I'd had. And, um, uh, in, in like 2015, while I was CEO, um, I was invited to give a keynote, a keynote speech at an event called Web Summit, which is in Dublin, Ireland. It's like 80,000 attendees. It's, you know, maybe the biggest tech conference there is. And um, uh, a wonderful woman I, I worked with at Kickstarter, Julie Wood, uh, challenged me to like make this talk count. She's like, do, you know, do something, do something in this talk. This is like, this is special do something. And, um, and at the time, um, there was this thing happening in my neighborhood. I lived in the Lower East Side of New York at the time. And there was a, uh, an old dive bar around the corner from my house called Mars Bar that had been like a place where punks would go um, in the 80s. And it, it was being, being torn down and a new um, TD bank was built in its place. And the strange thing about this was that there were three other TD banks within a 15 minute walk of that same location. And yet here's a piece of like his, literally history being torn Let, down. Let's replace history with a TD bank. With a TD bank. That's happening and, on corners all over the country, I think. Yes. And I just, uh, it was just preposterous to me. And I ended up doing some research and learned that there were almost 500 more bank branches in New York than there had been 10 years before. And I had this flash of like every one of those bank branches was something like Mars bar, something that had been a neighborhood staple that can't afford to be there anymore. And I just started thinking about why, like, what is this? Why is this? And 
and so that turned into a talk um, that also talked about Kickstarter, but was about, um, I, I proposed this theory that the world was being run by this belief in financial maximization, which is the idea that the rational choice in any decision is whichever option makes the most money. And that this implicit belief is what made us think that a TD bank being there instead of a mom and pop shop was progress. And it's the, it's the reason driving why a lot of these things are happening. So I, I give this 20 minute talk about that um, idea. And at the end I have like the, the, the unpitch for Kickstarter, but it's mainly just about this idea. And, um, and I was terrified giving it. It's, it's, it's as, as anxious as ever been giving a speech, uh, but people really liked it. And, uh, and I posted a transcript online a few days later that went like viral and it, you know, it was just a way I'd found a way to make something that's hard to talk about, like tangible. And, um, and so at that, when I made the list of all the things to do, one of the things I thought about was, Oh, there's like, there's the financial maximization talk thing. Like I could try pulling on that thread and maybe, maybe that's a book, you know, maybe that's what I should think about. And so after my two week process, um, I, I, or maybe three weeks, I netted out with like, I think the book is the thing I should, that felt most natural and I'm going to try. And, and so I actually, and you are a writer. So that was a I'm natural a writer. Yeah. So it's like my, my old world, but I, I, um, I gave myself a series of very firm milestones uh, to try to work towards this. So I made this decision to write the book in September. At that point, I had the idea. I had researched the talk before, but I hadn't done anything else. And I gave myself a goal to have a book deal by the end of the year. Um, and so I talked to a couple of friends who had written, a book, written books, and I got an idea of what an outline looked like, which is like the first two chapters and an outline of the rest. And I started working on that. And then I started meeting potential literary agents. And I met a bunch of people who wanted me to write a kickstart your business kind of book, um, which was not what I wanted to do. And I pitched my idea to these people who, you know, whatever, most of them were like, it's great. But I, I didn't believe them. And then I met this one person who was, um, who I ended up hiring, who was really skeptical of me. And I really liked that because I thought this is someone that will be a good filter. And so I gave my goal of, of having this done by the end of the year. And then I just wrote drafts for him until he said it was good enough. And, um, and then it ended up working, it, you know, sent out to a bunch of publishers, this, this outline and then um, the, the people I liked the most were interested in the book. And I, I also gave myself a year to write it. And I also reached that deadline. And so I sort of this whole process of like, what should I do? And then, um, following almost like these gated steps um, led to what felt like a very organic outcome, but also of me manifesting like a major project out of nowhere. Um, but all along feeling, um, feeling driven and excited and like, and, and just so happy to be working so hard on something, you know? So the book's about to be released. Yeah. What's the release date? Uh, the book come, The book is called This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. It comes out uh, on October 29th through Viking Books. Nice. Well, I will tell you that uh, I saw your presentation at the conference where we both spoke. And uh, two things that I'll say, and I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass. Number one, I thought that the concept of the book was awesome. People were leaning in. I was watching one of the things I do. I've given 850 speeches. I'm in, I've emceed dozens and dozens of conferences. I always watch the audience. And, you know, people, we live in a polite society. Nobody goes like, oh, God, rarely. I mean, you have to be really bad to get an audience mm -hmm. to stand up and walk out. But people weren't just 
being polite. People were leaning in and like taking out their pictures and taking pictures of your slides. And, and I, you know, I loved the concept of the, the bento box as the example that you used. And, and I said this, uh, when, after you finished that you had sort of a throwaway line in there about the bento box being designed not to overfill you, but to get you about 80% full. So you're still hungry for tomorrow. And I thought that was one of the most powerful things in this whole concept that you had about the world that we could live. And part of that is we got to stay a little hungry for tomorrow. So can you give a little bit of the, the, the details of, of the book? Just really quick. We're sure. running long. So just. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Sorry. No, no, yeah. no. It's good. This is this is good. But but just Thank give you. us. I, I thought the, the the premise of the book was fantastic. And then yeah. I'll, then I'll give the the second compliment after you tell the premise. OK. All right. Yeah. The, the the idea is that, you know, the world is being dominated by this belief in financial maximization, the belief that financial value is the only value worth growing, the only rational value there is any argument for doing anything that isn't about the money is kind of an emotional argument. You know, it's, it's not seen as, as, as rational. So the, the first half of the book tells the story of financial maximization, how it came into power. And the second half, I invent a new philosophy, um, a new way of defining and finding value I call bentoism, uh, which argues that today we see the world according to just our now me desires. We believe that's the only thing we should care about, the only thing that's in our self-interest. And Bentoism reveals that uh, the dimensions of our self-interest are far wider than we believe, and that the future is about making choices that aren't just optimizing for now me, but also our future selves, the us of now and the next generation, and that it's our failure to think about those spaces and to make choices acknowledging those spaces that's led to kind of the position we are in now um, that seems to be getting worse. So, yeah, it's a it's a. But the book is, um, it's pop. It's, 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 you know, it's 300 pages. You don't need a philosophy degree to read it. It's like <laughs> my examples are Adele and Patagonia and Chick-fil-A and, you know, lots of, lots of just everyday things around us. So it's meant to be a very relatable book. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that people will engage with the ideas. And my biggest dream is that it's something for other people to build on. And it's called This Could Be Our Future, and it'll be out this October. So everybody make make note, pay attention to that. Uh, I'll probably be putting it all over my social media when it comes out because I'll be one of the first people to buy it because I mm -hmm. did. I leaned in to everything that you were saying. And, and the second compliment I don't give to everybody, and that is you were a really good speaker. And I get to see a lot of CEOs who show up as speakers because they wrote a book or because their company's famous. And lots of times it's very, uh, here's why I'm great. Here's why my company's great. Thank you for thinking I'm great. We'll see you all later. You were really good. And I just, I don't give that compliment out to everybody. So I wanted to add, not only was your concept great, but you were really good. And I think that... Uh, you know, I, I called a couple of my professional speaker friends and said, we're in trouble because this guy's going to be the number one keynoter come 2020. Well, two thank that's very generous. And two things. One is that you gave me a great tip right when I got off stage, which was I did a great job, but I flubbed the ending. I just trailed off. And it's true. Of course, you just made me sound like a dick. It's true. No, but it's true. And, 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 and yeah, it's like it's a note for myself to try to get better about. Um but yeah, I've, I've always loved communicating. My father was a traveling waterbed salesman while I was growing up. So that, you know, you get something from that for sure. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, as the, as a CEO and as a leader in, in Kickstarter, we would have weekly or biweekly all hands meetings, the whole company coming together. And 
you know, those were moments uh, as a leader where it's your job to reflect the emotions and challenges of that moment. And you have to do that all the time. And you have to be able to be comfortable being real about things you don't want to be real about in front of a lot of people. And, and people really know you so they can sniff you out. And so that, that was just a, just a tremendous practice. And I mean, like the service of doing that, I loved so much. Um, But just that, that just makes you comfortable because if you're not comfortable talking to people, like they're not going to believe you. Well, Uh, I tell people all the time after I speak, people go like, you know, how come you can do that so comfortably? And I say, because I've done 850 presentations to corporations and associations and, and, you know, with time, you know, it becomes sort of a second nature, sort of how do you, you know, when people lean in, how do you lean back to them while still being totally authentic? And I think that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think that, that you've got that in spades. So I think that, I think that's awesome. So before we wrap this up, a couple of questions. If somebody's listening to this and they're like, I, I want to do this entrepreneur track, I, I want to go, I want to I go down the path. What advice do you have for people? Um, I would say a good test run of that is to try to be inside a startup or try to be in a small business that is in its earlier, more open stages that that will give you some hands-on experience with the wheel without you having to have hold total responsibility. So that, that can be a good gut check of just, can I handle this or not? Um, I don't know that I would have ever been an entrepreneur if there wasn't an idea that was calling to me. Um, I certainly know people who start companies because they like to be people who start companies and um, that's a perfectly valid reason to do things. It's just not one I identify with. Um, but for me, it was just like the idea was, would obviously work. And if we didn't build it, someone else would. And of course we should. So there was just a, I don't know, it just wasn't even a question. Um, if it's something where you're like, I want to start a business, I'm going to do this. I think you might have a lot of existential doubt along the way that will be trouble. Um, and then the last thing I would say is just reading all the time. You know, my, my experience was nil. And so I read other people's experiences so I could learn more. Um, one book that I found uh, super helpful was called Founders at Work by a woman named Jessica Livingston. She's one of the founders of Y Combinator. Mm-hmm. Um, this came out in like 2008, but it's, it's just interviews with uh, 60, 70 CEOs in the mid-2000s just explaining, talking about their process um, and their experience. And it just gave me a sense of the emotional highs and lows that I just didn't really know how to think about otherwise. Uh, So I found that to be super helpful. Uh, But the world, you know, entrepreneurship rates are declining in America. Um, They're declining even faster than the smoking rates since the 1970s. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's been a drop in half of the entrepreneurship rate per capita from 1977 until today. And that's the same as it's been in the drop in smoking rates from 1977 until today. That's fascinating. Yes. We need, we need more people starting things. So um, it's hard. Markets are crowded. Competitors are big. Uh, the low hanging fruit of small businesses being optimized by large companies. So it's, it's not easy, but it's extremely rewarding and, you know, it's hard for me to imagine having a day job ever again. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I encourage people to go for it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging for sure. So one of the things I speak about when I go into corporations is I, I have this talk about the gap that exists between potential and performance. And I've surveyed 
well over 500 people. I've interviewed over 100 people in regards to the survey. I've interviewed about 400 people on this program. And I always try to ask of the people who are successful, I always ask, why do you think some people get farther across that gap from potential to results to performance than other people do? Because everybody starts a business and we all go, oh, you've got so much potential. You're so smart. This is so great. But we all know a lot of people fail and other people succeed. What do you think is responsible, one or two things for that delta of why some people zoom across the gap? I, um, I, I'm, I'm going to say it comes down to their, their motivation. I think that people that are intrinsically motivated, so motivated by um, you know, some desire of helping, some answering a personal itch, like it's, it's going back to that calling. I think those people are more likely to succeed than people who are extrinsically motivated, who are motivated by rewards, who are motivated by uh, recognition. Um, you know, I, I interviewed a lot of people who really wanted to have on their resume that they worked at Kickstarter and who mm-hmm. were super impressive and had amazing pedigree. And I hired people from the best companies in the world who left to join us. And often those things wouldn't work out. Um, and, you know, I think there was a different level of, um, connection to the mission. Maybe it would, would change, uh, how well someone did. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just going to be moments of where things are going to be not fun, where things are going to be dull or not what you wanted or expected. And if that, if succeeding in that job is a calling, then like those dull things are, maybe they're a nuisance, but it's just all part of the process of getting there. If you're only there for rewards, then you're just like, what? Like, I got sold a lie here. You know, just the expectations are so wrong. Um, so, I don't know. I think there, there's some mix of how you're motivated. And then I think the kind of whether that creates entitlement or hunger in, in you on a day-to-day basis. No, I think that that's awesome. Hey, Yancey, I've got a couple of more questions for you before I let you go. But I've got to thank the sponsor of this episode. So, this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you're going to sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and the technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people like Yancey Strickler. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know some of you do, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things. And check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So, Yancey, I call this show Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. What is the coolest thing you're doing these days? Um, well, it's a preparing for this book to come out and, and raising a three-year-old and <laughs> being a good husband. Um, you know, those are um, – my, my life is a, is a mix of – professional and all the other parts of life. I don't know if you, there's an article that came out recently about the decline comes sooner than we think. This is about uh, uh, people's working lives and how you want to, how the, the moment where life transitions from professional interest to relationship interests comes earlier than people expect and they're unprepared. So maybe, maybe I'm becoming more prepared now, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm following this journey of writing a book and being an entrepreneur in a new kind of way. And so uh, I'm I'm loving the hustle of it. I, I love I love, um, yeah, doing all the nitty gritty of it. It's 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 fun, and I, I feel very invested in in making this making these ideas matter and making this succeed. Nice, 
Nice. Well, like I said, I, I, I think we'll be seeing you around the speaking world for quite some time. So uh, the, the water's fine. Welcome, you're welcome to jump in. <laughs> All right. So the, the last question I got for you, and I love to ask people who come on the show, is I love to ask entrepreneurs – who do you admire in the world of entrepreneurship? Because we can talk about you and Kickstarter and your book all day long. But the reality is I think great entrepreneurs, and this is my own observation, I think great entrepreneurs are observers. And so I love to get sort of just some feedback of when you look out into the entrepreneur sphere, who do you look at and say, wow, she or he, they're doing the cool stuff? Um, well, I think uh – I mean, so there's three things that will pop out to my to my mind immediately. Um, one is a one is a, a Japanese businessman named Konosuke Matsushita. Um, he started a company that later became called Panasonic in the 1920s, um, and he started it when he was a, in his late teens. And it was one of the first electrical companies in Japan, and he ran it for over 60 years. In the 1980s, he wrote a book um, that's a reflection on sort of the, the things he learned called Not for Bread Alone, and it's amazing. He, he writes in 1934 that the goal of a company is to end poverty. Uh, he gave his workers at that time one day off a week, one day off of work each week, this is in the 1930s, when it was typical for a worker to get two days off a month in Japan. Mm. Um, in 1960, he gave workers two days off a week at the time, uh, and, and other companies in the government of Japan didn't follow that for decades later. Um, and he just had this very, he believed that prosperity meant the the company succeeding, the employees succeeding, their families succeeding, the supplier succeeding, um, the physical surroundings succeeding. It's just a very generous, lovely idea uh, of how to run things. And he just has this very expansive view of value. And that's a book that I read during while I was CEO, and it, it was amazing. Like all my imposter fears really vanished once I found that because I felt like I had a role model for the first time. Uh, I also think the Beatles are amazing entrepreneurs. Um, I think they are, uh, there's a lot of interesting things about their career. The fact that they released a new album every six months and a new single every three months throughout their entire career. Um, a lot of how they structured and did things was, um, yeah, just super, super unique. Um, and then today, um, uh, you know, today I look up to, um, I don't know. I, I, I look up to Rose Marcario, the CEO of Patagonia. Patagonia does super, super progressive, thoughtful ways of how businesses um, should operate. Um, I think Sofia Amorosa, who does Girl Boss, is super cool. Um, just, I don't know, turning her success into an empire that fuels the success of other people is like a great way to do things. Um, yeah, but I, a lot of mine are more are on the artist or creator side. Is a lot of who I look to for interesting ideas. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm I'm in awe of, of many people. You know, it's 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 so hard. It's such a difficult thing, and uh, and I, I have a lot of appreciation for the people who do it so well. Well, and that's what we look to here on the show. Is I think that we can learn. You know, I said it when I start. Success leaves clues, and so when we look at the people like you named, and and so many others that people have named along the way, uh, I do find it interesting how many people tell me that they heard of somebody that someone mentioned. They went and looked the person up, or they read their book, uh, and it was so inspiring. So I think it's I think this idea of success leaves clues. You know, I think we can't get away from it, and so I I, I love to hear the people who people admire because it's different than the people I admire. So. 
Mm. Uh, mm. And on that list of people I admire, Yancey, is now Yancey Strickler. Thank you so much for coming on this show and sharing your journey and your story with uh, the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do crowd. Thank you. I appreciate it, Tom. Thanks so much. Well, and thank you to everybody who tuned in. I say it every single episode. If it wasn't for the audience, why would we have a show? Uh, most people who listen to the show tell me they find it because of word of mouth. They started listening because one of their friends said, oh, you should listen to this. Uh, so do me a favor. If you like the show, if you've stuck around, you know, 50 minutes into this episode, uh, tell a friend, go walk around the office, tell people to take out their iPhones and subscribe. Uh, the more people who subscribe, the higher the ranking, more people find the show. It's just a never-ending circle. So if you like the show, please tell people. And you can always reach out to me and let me know what you liked about the show. You can find me on all the social medias. That's at Tom Singer, T-H-O-M-S-I-N-G-E-R.com. And there is a Facebook page for Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do and uh, its own Twitter handle, at Cool Podcast. All right, we're going to be back. This was episode 475. I looked it up while we were talking. We're going to be back in a couple of days with an interview with somebody just as cool as Yancey. I know you're all thinking, how is that possible? Where would you find somebody this cool? But we do it every single week. So uh, please join us every Tuesday. It's usually just me chatting away about something I've observed. And on Thursdays, uh, we have an interview with somebody who is going to leave a little bit of clues about their success. So uh, go out there between now and the next episode. Do something cool. Try something new. And while you're at it, have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at, at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.